I told the folks in first hour that as I woke this morning, I began to do what I do habitually on, on Sunday mornings. I began to pray for Pastor Jay as he opened the Word. And then it dawned on me. <laughs> what a joy, what a privilege to stand before you and to look at God's Word together and, and to believe that His Spirit is going to encounter our hearts and lives in these moments, speak to us, draw us closer to Him, invite, convict, prod, encourage, all those things as He does His good work in our hearts. Our text this morning is 1 Peter 1.22 through chapter 2, verse 10. I wasn't going to read it in its entirety, but I think we've got time to do that this morning. So I'm going to go ahead and read it in its entirety. You will note as I read through this that there are numerous major themes, theological, scriptural, practical themes that you've heard preached on at one time or another, that I've preached on at one time or another. I was thinking this morning, I've probably preached 10 different messages from this passage, and we're not going to be able to deal with all that's here, but we're going to take a little bit of a different look this morning. And interestingly, when Jay asked me if I would fill the pulpit for him today, he and I talked about the topic and talked about an approach to the text and we were right on the same wavelength, so I'm excited to be standing in for him today and looking at God's Word. Let's read then from chapter 1, beginning at verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. And like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected and precious to him, you also have, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. To those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Called out of darkness. In a moment, uh, or I should say in the moments before us this morning, I want to consider with you the implications of being a people called out of darkness into God's glorious light. Those of you who've been with us for the past couple of weeks know that Pastor Jay has entitled this series of studies through 1 Peter, Finding Hope in a Hostile World. It's a timely topic for the church today, even as it was in Peter's day. 
Just as surely as hostility and darkness characterized the city of Rome and her extended empire in the first century, so today in our own time and place, true followers of Christ here in Chicagoland and around the world are not ignorant of nor immune to the encroaching darkness of this present age. Not only are we aware of the darkness that pervades our culture, but if we're honest, we will confess that we feel its impact on our own hearts and minds and homes. I'm reminded of the teaching of our Lord on this matter, recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15, when Jesus said, It is not what comes from the outside that defiles a man, but rather what comes from the heart. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and all that defiles a person. So when Peter tells us in verse 9 of chapter 2 that as born-again believers, we have been called out of the darkness of this world, we must understand him to be referring not only to the growing darkness of the world around us, but also, and may I say even primarily, to the darkness we cherish in our hearts and minds. May I say that it's vitally important that we understand this truth. The reason being that we have a tendency to hate the darkness around us, but to cherish the darkness within us. Many years ago now, when I arrived at my first pastorate in North Hollywood, California, I was taken back by the darkness of the culture around me. I'd been raised in a Christian home by very godly parents, was part of a Quaker community all those years, uh, having confessed Christ at an early age. I had spent the last eight years of my life, four of them at a Christian college, and then four more at seminary. I was, to say the least, shocked by the darkness of the culture in which I had been called to minister. And one day during my devotions, as I was complaining to the Lord that he and I had obviously made a serious mistake in choosing such a dark and hostile place for me to pastor. Clearly, nothing in my sheltered past had prepared me for this kind of a, a service of ministry, proclaiming the gospel of transformation to people living in such a dark and perverse environment. There were people all around me in my neighborhood, some within the very doors of my church who were lesbians or pedophiles, adulterers, addicts, pornographers, Satanists. I didn't know, but at that time, North Hollywood was considered the, the um, pornography capital of the world. And this was my parish, if you will. In the quiet of those moments as I waited on the Spirit of God to affirm the rightness of my thinking, he turned his searchlight not on the darkness of North Hollywood and the sinners who lived there, but instead on the dark corners of my own heart and mind. Where he exposed sins of pride and self-righteousness and lust and self-centeredness. And in that moment, I realized that God wasn't calling me to flee the dark streets of North Hollywood, California, but the dark imaginations of my own heart and mind. That God hadn't made a mistake in bringing me here after all. I was, in fact, a perfect match for this dark city. 
a sinner among sinners, whose only hope was the call of God on my life, a call to flee the darkness I had cherished in my heart and look to the cross of Christ. Christian, this is the darkness that we have been called out of and the darkness we must flee. Last Sunday morning, Pastor Jay reminded us that we are to hate sin. He said, kill it. Don't play around with it. We're to kill sin, to hate it. And we do. But too often it is the sin and the darkness in others that we hate. While the tendency is to continue to cherish the darkness in our own hearts. In their dictionary of biblical imagery, Riken, Wilhoit, and Longman write these words. With approximately 200 references, darkness is a major actor in the biblical drama, but it stands out from every other literary image because it is uniformly negative in its import. And the reason for this, they say, lies in the fact that in Scripture, darkness, darkness nearly always represents moral darkness and stands for willful ignorance, evil, lostness, captivity, and ultimately, death. Furthermore, darkness is never presented to us in Scripture as a casual or a secondary adversary of God's people, but rather as a powerful spiritual reality to be taken with all seriousness by the children of God. In Luke 22, 30 or 53, Jesus himself speaks of the rain, the power of darkness, which is about to take him to the cross. In Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul tells us that as followers of Christ, our daily battles are not against physical enemies, but rather against the powers of present darkness. Were you and I to know nothing more about spiritual darkness than this, we might very well be tempted to lose hope. Especially when the darkness in the world around us continues to press in upon us at every turn. Many years ago now, I told the first hour of this, I'll tell you that, when you're 77, almost everything is many years ago now. <laughs> so if you hear me using that phrase a lot, I confess. Many years ago now, I read the following account in a devotional booklet. It read as follows. Recently, I was in a cave in Kentucky. And when we'd gone deep into the bowels of the earth, through many winding pathways, the guide suddenly turned off all the lights and said, if I were to leave you folks in this dark chamber, you would never find your way to the surface. Those few who have been lost in this cavern have become insane within a week. So, Here's the challenge, he said. Be quiet for one minute and feel the darkness. And then the writer continued, after about 30 seconds, someone in the party could endure the ordeal no longer and whimpered, turn on the lights, I'm going crazy now. Well, in like fashion, the spiritual darkness of our age has caused many to lose hope and to despair of ever finding their way back to the light. If you doubt this, sit down and watch the evening news for half an hour, almost any night of the week, and see if it doesn't cast a dark shadow over your soul. 
there can be no doubt about it. Darkness has the power to rob men of hope. But the good news of the gospel is this. That Father God has sent His Son Jesus into the world to rescue us from the power of darkness and to restore hope to those who are otherwise hopeless. In verse 9 of our text for today, God is described as Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. And in Colossians chapter 1 verse 13, the Apostle Paul tells us that He has rescued us from the dominion, from the power of darkness. Taken together, these two words, called and rescued, paint a beautiful and compassionate picture of God's redemptive work in His calling of His chosen ones out of spiritual darkness into wonderful light. When Peter tells us that we have been called out of darkness, he uses the Greek word kalein. It is a technical term used throughout the New Testament to speak of God's initiative in delivering those lost in darkness into His kingdom of light. And hard as it may be to believe for us this morning, God's Word tells us that fallen man actually prefers to live in darkness. His ignorance and his lostness are of his own choosing. He would rather stumble about in the dark. He would rather live with the fear of eternal darkness and damnation than turn to Christ and live. You may say, well, that can't possibly be true, can it? People aren't that dumb. What reasonable thinking man or woman or young person would choose to live a life in darkness when they could choose to live a glorious life of light with their Savior? And yet the truth of the matter is that day in and day out, you and I bump into scores of men and women and young people who have heard the gospel hundreds of times and yet prefer to live in the darkness, the darkness of their ignorance and their sinful behavior and enslavement. You see, it's only the mercy of God, Peter tells us, that causes him to extend a call out of darkness into light. And it is only his sovereign grace that enables us to respond by faith. No wonder then, when Paul takes up this same theme in his writings, in Colossians 1.13, he stresses the fact that this call out of darkness is in fact a rescue. That is, it was a deliverance, a redemption, a being bought out of bondage from the power that held us enslaved. Paul tells us there in 1 Corinthians 1, 13 and 14 that God has rescued us from the dominion, the control of darkness. He has brought us into the kingdom of His Son, in whom, that is in Christ, we have redemption, that is freedom, and in whom we experience the forgiveness of sins, and we might add, in whom we have the sure hope of eternity in His glorious kingdom. All this is ours as a result of His merciful call in our lives, a call out of darkness and into His wonderful light. And that brings us to the question that we want to focus the rest of our time on this morning, and it's this. How should we respond? Those of us who've been called out of darkness, you've heard God's call in your life. You see, I'm not living a perfect life, Pastor. I'm not going to tell you I am, but I know that call. And I know that it has transformed me. It's changed me. It's made me a member of His forever kingdom and His forever family. I'm so thankful. And, and, and how do I respond to that? 
What should my response be? Well, the answer to this question is the focus of Peter's comments in chapter 1, verse 22, through chapter 2, verse 10. Our response, he tells us, should be one of obedience. Obedience. An obedience born of love and the deepest imaginable appreciation for the work of Christ in calling us out of darkness and setting us free. In chapter 1, verse 22, he says, you... You, believers, you purify, you sanctify, you, you set your hearts right before God by obeying the truth. And how will this obedience be seen in our lives? What does it look like? The list is almost endless since God's transforming work touches every conceivable area of our lives. But Peter identifies four specific issues of obedience that should be observable in the lives of those called out of darkness. Let me name them for you, and then we'll take a moment to look at each of them. First, he tells us our lives should be characterized by love. Chapter 1, verse 22, love one another earnestly. Second, our lives should be characterized by a craving for God's Word. Chapter 2, verse 2. Third, our lives should be characterized by a constant study and rehearsal of our identity as children of God, what it means to be His children. This He tells us in chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And finally, our lives should be characterized by a, a, a frequent, if not constant, declaration of His excellencies before others. Chapter 2, verse 9. Each one of these issues of obedience is, I must tell you, worthy of a sermon and uh, I don't have the time to do that this morning, though I have preached those sermons on other occasions. But this morning, we're going to look just briefly at each of these four calls to obedience in our lives, based on the fact that we want to be obedient out of love to the one who's called us out of darkness. First, love one another earnestly. This love for our brothers and sisters in Christ is to be earnest. It is to be deeply felt more than simply kind words, a love touching one's deepest emotions, a love from the heart. It's interesting, we often in the church play down emotions, play down feelings. In this particular verse, Peter is saying the love that you have, the love that God's given you for your brothers and sisters in Christ should touch you, it should move you at a gut level. You should feel it. You should know it when you get up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, and when you see your brother or sister struggling, it should reach you at a gut level. It's interesting, in the, in the ancient world, the thought was that the center of one's being was the liver and then the bowels. And so some of you remember in the King James Version, you used to read words like, uh, we should love with tender bowels of mercy. Oh, my goodness gracious. What is that about? It's based on this idea, and the word there was splankna, and it meant your gut. And it's used throughout the New Testament to tell us that the love we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ isn't simply to be some formality or just in words. We're to feel it. We're to let it reach us at the deepest level, even to our very heart. Just a few verses later, Peter picks up this theme again in chapter 2, verse 1. If I may paraphrase, he says, if you are sincere about loving one another in this manner, you must begin by ridding yourselves of all malice, that is, anything harmful to another. All deceit, all falsehood, all hypocrisy, all pretense, all envy and slander of any kind, 
You know, as I reflected on Peter's call to earnest, heartfelt love among brothers and sisters in Christ, my mind went back to my early years in my home church in Ohio. And I was remembering, I was thinking to myself, what was the first thing we counseled new believers? What was the first thing we counseled folks who had been called out of darkness to do in order to show that they were sincere? To do in order to grow in Christ's likeness. You know what we ordered them to do? We said, well, the first thing you got to do is stop smoking. And if you, uh, if you, if you bet when you play cards, you want to stop doing that. And you want to stop going to the movies. And in the case of the Quaker church, we had about a hundred things you had to stop doing because we thought you were going to get to heaven by what you didn't do. But those are the kinds of things we told people they needed to do. And I thought to myself as I read these words of Peter, how pathetic our appeal sounded compared to the commands of Christ through Peter. When he says, look, if you're sincere, if you've been called out of darkness and you want the light of Jesus Christ to show in your life and you want to grow in the faith, you know what you want to do? You want to practice loving your brothers and sisters in Christ from your gut. You want to practice being a man or a woman of deep love. Peter might have said, well, you want to stop betting on the, on the chariot races. That'll help you be a better Christian. But he didn't say that. He said, here's God's heart. God's heart for you is that you love one another from a deep heart, an honest heart of integrity. The second issue of obedience called the attention of those whom God has called out of darkness appears in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, crave pure spiritual milk. Note, Peter doesn't say crave the spiritual milk of the word because you are newborn babes in Christ. He doesn't say that. What he says is crave it like newborn babes so that you may grow up in your salvation. The point is this. This is not an issue of obedience only for new converts. Every child of God, no matter how long you've walked with him, requires the pure milk of God's word on a daily basis so that he, she may continue to grow in Christ. Furthermore, we are not only commanded to drink your milk like our moms and dads told us to do. We are commanded to crave it. We are commanded to cultivate an intense personal hunger, desire for it. There's general agreement among commentators that the object of this command is the Word of God, pure, spiritual, able to grow you up in your salvation. Now, because my grandfather was a dairy farmer and because my father was a door-to-door milkman, I have followed with some interest the tendency of more and more advertisers to identify their product as milk. You probably don't even care about this, but it bugged me. It bugged me when they started talking about soy milk and almond milk. And I'm going, yeah, I'd like to see them squeeze a drop of milk out of an almond. <laughs> Oat milk. You know, yeah, sure. Oh, come on. One guy even talked about barley milk. That's beer, you know. And recently, the dairy farmers and producers got so upset by this, they, they took this issue to, to court to get a ruling on it. Uh, they said these people just can't use the word milk to describe their products. But the court ruling came down, and it was that it's okay for the producers of these products to refer to their products as milk. I could hardly believe it. I was outraged. I said to Sherry, they can call it milk if they want to, but that doesn't make it 
milk, and I'm not going to call it milk until somebody squeezes a drop of milk out of it. In like fashion, there are always some in the church who seem to suggest that you can substitute some theology work or devotional pamphlet or Christian video, some brand of Christian music. You can substitute those things for the Bible. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? There's a lot of good Christian books, Christian music, Christian magazines, podcasts. Furthermore, I do encourage you to take advantage of them. But God hasn't commanded us to crave Calvin's Institutes or Pastor So-and-So's preaching notes or Timothy Keller's latest book. Christian, there is no substitute by which you may grow up in your salvation. Few men have ever craved the Word of God like King David. I love his words. How can a young man stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you, he says. I crave you with all my heart. And I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. By the way, how's your appetite for the word of God doing these days? I was talking with my daughter-in-law recently and uh, one of their sons, my grandson, and his wife are living with them. And they've got three little ones, three kids, four and younger. And uh, Sam, that's my grandson, his wife, it was not raised in a Christian home, and she's just discovering the faith and the scriptures and all. And uh, I said to Nancy, How, how's Australia doing? How's she doing with this whole idea of the gospel and scriptures and all. He said, she's coming along real good. I said, well, what makes you think that? She said, I'll tell you. She finds time all day long. Every time she puts one of those kids down, she gets a free moment. She runs to the stand over there, and she picks up the Bible, and she reads it, and then she comes back to me, and she asks me questions about it, and then she goes and she reads some more, and she does that all day long. Can I tell you I was convicted? I remember a time when my hunger for the word was that strong. I want it always to be that strong. That brings us to a third issue of obedience for those called out of darkness. Not only should we love one another as Christ loved us, not only should we crave time spent in God's Word, we should also make it our business to study and rehearse our identity as children of God. We need to know who we are. And knowing his readers have come to faith in Christ out of Jewish backgrounds, Peter uses the language of the Old Testament writers to betray our identity in Christ now. He says, we're living stones. We're being built up into the spiritual house. He knew they'd think of the temple, but he wanted them to see that picture, have that in mind, and think, now in Christ we're living stones, and we're being built up into a dwelling place for Christ as well. He continues, we're a holy priesthood. We no longer need a priest to go in before the holy of holy places and talk with the Father. We can come boldly. You know that. We can come boldly before the throne of God, do we? We can pour everything in our lives out in front of Him, do we? Moment by moment, we can share our life with Him, do we? That's our freedom because we're priests before God and we can offer up spiritual sacrifices to Him by way of praise and petition saying to Him, we love you and by the way, we need you desperately. That's who we are. We're a priesthood before God. 
Again, in chapter 2, verse 9, he tells us that we're a chosen people. Just as Israel was a chosen people, so we, the church, are the chosen of God. And so, too, are we a holy nation and a special possession. I love that. I'm a special possession of God. And we are recipients of God's mercy. This is our identity in and through the saving and the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ. Now, note this. The business of knowing and constantly rehearsing our identity in Christ is a matter of obedience. Had you ever thought of that? Chapter 2, verse 4, as you come to him. We might read it every time you draw close to him in prayer, in praise, in petition. You should give thought to, you should rehearse in your thinking who you are, what your identity is as his child. You know, as I read this passage this week, I was reminded that as a child, my favorite holiday was not the usual one. It wasn't Christmas, it wasn't Easter, it was Thanksgiving. And here's why. To me, that was the most wonderful day of the year. My mom came from a large family. She was one of 11 children, every one of whom felt it was their responsibility to go out and propagate the species. So when we got together on Thanksgiving Day, there was a table that started near the wood stove in my mom and pop's old kitchen, and it went down through, through the, the, the living room and out into the parlor, and parlors, and then it came back through the, the formal living room and the bedroom, actually the bedroom, and it came out the, the other door, and this, there was this huge table with sometimes 60, sometimes as many as 70 people around those tables, and nobody more distant than a first cousin. I loved that day. Four, five, six years of age, we'd go out to mom and pops. Here was that table with all kinds of meat and all kinds of goodies on it. But here was the fun part. I knew exactly where I fit at that table. I knew where I belonged. I would be between cousins Dave and Dan. I would fit right in there. Dick would be on this side. Mark would be on that side. My sister would be down at the far end. And at any rate, I knew where I fit. I was a part of this family. I belonged. I wasn't alone. We were together in this thing. We were roars, whatever that meant. I felt, I knew who I was on Thanksgiving like I didn't know any other day. In later years, I would read the family history and discover that my mom's family, my family, traced their roots back to the French Huguenots of Alsace-Lorraine, a people almost entirely wiped out because of their faith. And once again, I had that sense of who I was and my religious heritage and where I fit into the family and the purpose of God. But listen, as wonderful, as empowering as that sense of family, of belonging and fitting was, it was nothing in comparison to my identity, your identity, Christian, as a child of God. Some months ago now, I was asked to do a funeral, and uh, I was reminded on, on that occasion of the very first funeral I was asked to do many years ago in North Hollywood. One of my elders came to me and said, I'd been at the church, I, I think, about a month. I was 26 years of age. I'd never, never done a funeral. He said, well, you do the funeral for my dad. He just passed away. I said, tell me about him. He said he was a believer. He loved the Lord. He served him all of his years and so forth and so on. I went home, began to prepare the message. Then I realized I really don't want anything about this man to say. And I called my elder back and I said, tell me a little bit about him. He said, well, what do you want to know? So I asked a couple obvious questions. He filled in a few of the blanks. And then he said, to me, but I really don't want you to recite what he did. I want you to remind them who he was. And I thought, who was this man? Was he some famous person I didn't even know about? I looked at his name again. 
I don't, I don't remember ever seeing that in the newspaper. I, don't, I called somebody else in the church. Who was Pop Hall? They said, I don't know. So I called my elder back and I said, I guess it's just one way to ask this. Who was your dad? Oh, he said, he was a child of God. Beloved, now we're children of God. It hasn't even appeared what we shall be. We've got a good. We've got an identity second to none. So then here's my challenge to you, Christian. If you know who you are, make it your habit to refresh your thinking on this matter every time you come into God's presence. If not, make it your business to discover who you are if you've never done that, if you've never gotten a hold of this truth. You see, why is that so important? Let me tell you one story. I can't tell it in depth, but I'll give it about three minutes, okay? When I moved to the church in Deerfield, there was a young woman brought to my office because she had been at one of our Bible studies. She was 17 years of age. And she'd been throwing fits, beating on walls, breaking windows. She was mute. She couldn't speak. She certainly couldn't be anywhere where the name of Jesus was being mentioned. She had come, I learned, she had come out of a satanic background and had been abused in those settings for her whole life. She had been in and out of psych wards and hospitals all along the North Shore. She had been identified as a multiple personality. Seven distinct personalities had been identified in this woman. He was so distinct that in, in one case, uh, one of the personalities was totally blind and another had 20-20 vision. And this was documented. And nobody wanted to deal with her in any way, spiritually, medically, any other way. And this person was brought to my office, and what am I supposed to do? Pray. <laughs> begin to pray. Begin to trust God for work in her life. Begin to trust God to do something to, to call her out of darkness and miraculously, over the next several years, we saw God do a work and release her and set her free from this, this terrible background. And, and, and we saw wonderful things happen. It was my privilege to be her pastor for 24 years following that. But the key day came, the moment in her life when she realized, began to realize her new identity in Christ. She was no longer seven fractured, tortured individuals. She was one child of God before the cross, holy and whole through Jesus Christ. My friend, there is great power. There's great power in the work of God to make us known who we are, to help us understand who we are through Jesus Christ and the work he's done in our life. I believe many of us would experience, and I'm not suggesting this is normative, but I believe many of us would experience greater wonders of power if we understood and took rightly our privilege as children of God. Finally, we come to the last of four issues of obedience for those called upon or called out of darkness, and it's this. He says we're to love one another, we're to crave his word, we're to rehearse our identity as children of God, and then we're to declare his excellencies. Just briefly, 2.9, you are God's special possession that, in order that, you may declare the praises, the wonderful deeds, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Wayne Grudem says to declare God's excellencies is to speak of all he is and all he has done. That'll take a while. You can spend a lifetime doing that. I submit to you that this is the ultimate act of obedience for every man, woman, and child who has been called out of darkness into glorious light. 
I share this story as I close this morning. Many years ago now, when I graduated from high school, I was part of a class of a thousand students in a large inner city school. Back in those days, we still did silly little things like um, have listings of most likely and least likely. Did some of you come through schools where they did that? You know, most likely to get married before she's 20, most likely to have more than five kids, most likely to hold public office, most likely to spend some time in jail, most likely. But we not only had most likely to, we also had least likely to, okay? And on the list of most likely, least likely was most likely to be a preacher. And guess who won hands down, okay? Now, you got to understand, this was before I had any sense of call in my life, so I thought that was a joke at the time. But at any rate, most likely, Marty. Least likely was a kid named John Tressel, who was a hellion. If there was trouble, he was either there or he'd started it. And if he hadn't started it yet, he was about to. And so everybody knew John. Everybody knew this was who he was. Least likely to ever become a preacher. After high school, I lost track of John. I went to college. I went out to the West Coast and pastored. Fourteen years later, I came back to my hometown, Canton, Ohio. Took up a pastoral call there in one of the churches in my, in my hometown. And uh, I remember standing one Sunday morning shortly after I arrived and looking out across the congregation and to my right in the middle section there, I saw a familiar face. I saw John Tressel. After the service was over, I, I did what pastors don't often do. I rushed to the back and I lassoed him and I said, John, it's so good to see you. What are you doing these days? I figured he was going to say, oh, 10 to 15. <laughs> Got a big grin on his face. He said, Marty, uh, you know me. You know what I'm doing. He said, uh, I'm a missionary in France, and I'm proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Most likely, least likely, Quaker kid, hellion, known for his witness to Jesus Christ, known for his curses and blasphemies, both called out of darkness into his glorious light. Both spending their lives declaring his excellencies to a lost world. It's the least any one of us can do. Summons. I learned this from Pastor Jay, okay? Three summons. First, if God is calling you out of darkness, you're here this morning and you've lived in darkness and you have never turned the corner, you've never repented, you've never turned to Christ, and said, you take over in my life. I want to walk in the light of the truth of the gospel. I want you to be my Savior. I want you to take control of my life. That's you. You've never, you've never walked in the light. You say, here's, here's what you want to do. You want to do what, um, what good football backs do. You know, I learned this years ago. Run to the light. Don't worry so much about the blockers. Don't worry so much about what the other team's up to. Don't worry about anything going on around you. Just find the light and run to it. And you know who the light is. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And he invited you to run to him and find forgiveness and freedom and escape and life and life eternal. You run to Jesus. You do it today. Now is the hour. If you've heard this call and, and you're a born-again child of God, 
and you hate the darkness in the world around you, but you're cherishing some hidden darkness in your own heart. You get on your knees sometime today and you ask God to give you a hatred for that thing in your heart, that darkness in your heart that equals your hatred for other people's darkness. If you're a child of God and, and, and some issue of obedience that we've talked about this morning, say, yeah, I need to refresh that. I need to make a renewed commitment to craving the Word of God. I need to, to belly down and get a hold of this whole idea of loving with an intensive love, a, a, a love that's felt from the heart, from the gut. Um, I, I need to rethink this whole question of who I am in Christ. I need to get a hold of my identity in Christ. My power resides in my identity in Him, not myself. I'm powerless, so I need to get a hold of it. Whatever it is, you say that one of these areas, the Spirit of God just put His finger on you in that moment. You just tell Him in these closing moments this morning, God, as you enable me, as you enable me, I'm going to pursue that matter with a heart of obedience. Would you do that? Let's pray together. Spirit of God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your call out of darkness into light. Thank you for rescuing us because we couldn't get out of it ourselves. We were stuck in the dark. We were there for eternity except that you came and mercifully rescued us and delivered us and redeemed us. What wonderful words. You bought us out of a dark, dark place into your glorious light. How we thank you for that. How we praise you. May we be children of light, living in that light, we pray. Amen.